My text is Luke 17, verses 1 through 10. Uh, You will find it printed on the back of your bulletins. I'll be reading out of the New King James. Luke 17, verses 1 through 10. Then he said to the disciples, It is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day, and seven times a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. And the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. So the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. And which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk, and afterwards you shall eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you, when you've done all those things which you are commanded to do, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. We have an ugly tendency in our hearts. The root of it is pride. We tend to view the people around us through the lenses of our own experiences and our own personalities, as if we were the yardstick by which appropriate behavior is measured. It's pretty complicated because it's so ingrained in our hearts, but we tend to say that the way that we do things is the right way and the way that you do things is the wrong way. The way that I am is the right way and more approved by God than the way that you are. This comes out in so many different ways. I raised my children right, therefore the way you are doing it is unapproved by God. Or we say, I don't have anxiety, therefore your anxiety is proof that you're not trusting God as I do. Or for those who are disabled, we will say, I don't have brain damage, and therefore the way you have brain damage is unapproved by God. I don't suffer from depression, so your depression is just because you make bad choices. We tend to say if you are suffering, it's because you're making poor choices and living an unapproved lifestyle. This was brilliantly illustrated in a little anecdote from a book called Everything Sad is Untrue. I'd like to read you one paragraph out of this book. A boy is walking across a field that looks like it's covered in blood. And then Daniel Nayeri writes, And then he sees a stiff, blind horse and thinks it's the saddest thing he's ever seen. He doesn't know what to do to help him. He can't just leave it there in the bloody field, but he doesn't have a way to help either, and he wants to keep going. Suddenly, he starts to talk himself into caring less about it. Little by little, to make sure his heart doesn't break, he makes himself immune to the pain of the horse, with its shut eyes underneath the rusty mane. Then he says, he must be wicked to deserve such pain. And just like that, it's the horse's fault. 
The thought that a creature could be blind through no fault of its own is unacceptable to the natural heart. For it is terrifying to live in a world where we are not gods and we aren't even sure if God sees or actually cares. So naturally we respond to protect ourselves. We don't fully trust that God is good and that we'll make all things right and we'll open blind eyes and heal the brain damage and raise the dead. So we trust in our own choices, our own strength, our own cures, our own personalities, our own remedies. And those work well until blindness strikes you. But that's another story. We're fully entrenched in the thoughts of our hearts that people like me are more pleasing to God than people like you. And we will say, I'm sorry for your hurt, but you're stupid and make bad choices. The only solution is for you to make better choices the way I do. But this exposes our heart. The fact is, the curse of death is on this world. And that curse of death is so ugly and so powerful that the only cure is the death of the Son of God. Let that sink in for a moment. The cross of Christ is the only solution to the corruption of your heart. God saw the absolute best that the human heart had to offer and he marveled that there was no one Not one worthy of the name servant. As he said in Isaiah, which we just read, he wondered that there was no intercessor. He saw that there was no man. There was no justice. There is no hope in our good intentions. No hope in our political coalitions. No hope in our religious services. No hope in our flesh. No hope in our money. And yet... One of the biggest stumbling blocks we have is we think that because we've performed so well that God somehow owes us. And when we think like that, we're thinking like a slave. So in our text, I'm actually starting from the end and working my way back. Jesus says, okay, you're going to think like a slave. Let me give you an example. This is called an unreal example. That means... It doesn't actually exist. There's no possibility that it can exist. But we're going to suppose that it does exist, just for the sake of argument. Suppose that from the time of your birth to the time of your death, you have completed every single duty and every act of service that God has called you to do, and you've done it exactly perfectly. What would God owe you then? Didn't you just do everything that you were supposed to do anyway? Isn't the appropriate response to say, I'm an unprofitable servant. I've just done that which was my duty to do. Do you understand what Jesus is saying? When you think like a slave, even if you can imagine doing everything perfectly, God still owes you nothing. Back to the example of the horse and the boy. The horse is blind, the boy is not. The assumption that the boy makes is that he merited something to be having seeing eyes. 
If the horse is blind, it must be because the horse is wicked. And then that presupposes that the boy can see because the boy is righteous. We make that same assumption. We say to ourselves, when we see someone struggling with some kind of a misfortune, we say, well, it must have happened to them because they have some kind of unrighteousness in them. And it won't happen to me because I don't have that same kind of unrighteousness in me. And when we think like that, Jesus is saying, we're thinking like slaves. The one thing that God hates in his servants is when those who are the influential ones in the church teach everyone to think like slaves. And this is what Jesus is warning his disciples of. Woe to him through whom stumbling blocks come. Don't teach people to think like slaves. When the disciples hear what Jesus is teaching, they say, increase our faith. So Jesus gives us the nature of faith. Faith teaches us to look to God as our Father. God is the rewarder of those who diligently seek after him, the one who provided salvation from sin. He's provided redemption from bondage, adoption as sons. Faith, then, is the contrary of thinking like a slave. Faith holds to the merit of another. That's the merit of Christ. When a person believes that his only standing before God is because of the person and work of Jesus Christ, everything changes. Even the smallest faith, if it is saving faith, unites us to Christ, who is the object of our faith. We are weak, as we just sung, but he is strong. Even when a man still struggles with the flesh, he relates to others differently if he is united to Christ by faith. And so if you respond consistently with faith, that my standing before God is merely of grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits, then what our desire is above all is to point people to Christ and not to point them to ourselves. We also desire to reconcile. We want everyone to know the peace and the rest that we know under the wings of our Lord. And so Jesus warns, now we'll go back to the practical application at the beginning of the text. Jesus warns his disciples to be very careful not to cause offenses. The word means lay a trap, throw down a snare. It means to set something up, causing other people to fail. We're going to set up the condition so that you will fail, that you will not know Christ, and that you will fall. The devil is the expert at it. It increases bondage. It causes people to trip and fall and be destroyed. In this cursed world, of course, we know that there are many things to stumble over. We as believers are warned not to let them stumble over anything except the cross of Christ. They will stumble over the cross of Christ unless God changes the heart. This is complicated to understand. Let's look at Jesus' day, the Pharisees again. This comes in the midst of his conflict with the Pharisees. 
The Pharisees divided the world between the righteous ones and the sinners. The sinners, in the mind of the Pharisees, were the poor, the sick, the outcast, those ensnared with moral failings. They would include blind horses. Those are the sinners. These are the ones in bondage to sin and misery, according to the Pharisees. But Jesus pulls back the veil and he says to the Pharisees, You are so in bind, you are so in bondage to sin and misery. You can't see it. He says in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. You neither go in yourselves nor allow those who are entering to go in. You're not only in, you make sure no one else goes in either. He says, you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Let's put it into our modern context. We throw stumbling blocks in front of the world today. We have become more and more like the Pharisees of old. In our church services, we point to ourselves, our politics, our personalities, our cultures. Even the architecture of our buildings are all designed to point to the celebrity on the platform. And the celebrities come up with rules. We have all sorts of rules about how to deal with illness, anxieties, depression, health disorders. We have all sorts of rules on how to raise your children on how to do marriage, on who you should vote for, on what our policy should be, on what a Christian economic viewpoint is. And we divide the world between those who are in and those who are out. Those who are in are the ones who have the financial means to do homeschooling, to keep a wife at home, whose children are low-key and have no health issues. Those who don't struggle with anxiety or depression or ADHD, those who raise their children right, who have the right personality, the right pedigree, that look just like me. And those who are out is everyone else. Those who aren't married. Those who have pasts who make them uncomfortable. Those who can't have children. Those whose brains work differently. Those who can't memorize catechisms, who have uncomfortable disconnects in their brains that I can't understand. Those who talk too much, or those who talk too little, or those whose sins are ickier than my sins. Sometimes we leave out those who are introverts or those who are extroverts. We have all sorts of lines that we draw to say, you are in and you are out. We put stumbling blocks in front of people. And the solution is be more like me. Make choices like my choices. Stop being the way that you are and be more like me. Get married, raise kids, keep quiet about abuse. Put on a happy face. Don't talk to me about things that make me uncomfortable. And thus we keep them all from Christ. We fill our churches with those who are playing happy families. And we don't play. We don't preach the gospel. We never point to the only one who saves, who saves from every kingdom and every tribe and every culture, a great diversity, all clothed with one garment, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Revelation 7, it says, I looked 
And behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. In other words, a whole bunch of people that may or may not think like me or act like me or have my experience or have my background or the color of my skin, but they were all standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were all clothed with white robes. They all had palm branches in their hands, and they were all singing praise to the Lamb of God. But instead of pointing people to Christ alone, we teach in our conversation and in our lives that what they seek can be found if they just apply the right dedication, the right fortitude, and make the right decisions. And so we think like slaves rather than sons. We think in terms of God as a taskmaster who owes us blessings because we're the right sort of people rather than sinners adopted by grace, made beautiful by the blood of the Lamb, and adorned as a bride ready for the groom. And it isn't out of merit. It's out of love. And from love flows mercy and grace and favor. If it's merit, then it isn't mercy. This is why faith as a grain of mustard seed, if consistently lived, will overthrow all of the stumbling blocks in your own heart. It will make the crooked places smooth and the rough places plain, and it will make valleys out of mountains. The little ones that Jesus is referring to are the children or humble believers, those who have no strength. These would be the ones that the Pharisees referred to as sinners. They're the ones not like us, not the important people. These are the nobodies. They have no strength and nothing to offer. They know they aren't as strong and as wise and as righteous and as holy as they ought to be. And what happens in every age is these are the ones that tend to be crushed and discarded rather than encouraged and strengthened and continually pointed to Jesus. The point is in these verses is may we never ever lose a sheep because they couldn't keep up with all of our rules. May we never lose one of Jesus' sheep because they were afraid to express themselves and afraid to speak, afraid to tell their stories. May we never lose one of Jesus' sheep because they didn't look like us and everyone continually pointed that fact out to them. This is what Jesus is talking about when the gatekeepers of the church begin to demand payment for entry whatever that payment might be, then we're setting traps for the people of God to keep them in bondage, especially the little ones who have nothing to offer. David prayed that the Lord would keep him from the wickedness of those who satisfy their lusts for power by laying traps for the sheep. Psalm 140, he says, Keep me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Preserve me from violent men who have purposed to make my steps stumble. The proud have hidden a snare for me in cords. They have spread a net by the wayside. They have set traps for me. David was talking about those in the house of Israel, those inside the church who were enemies of the gospel. And when he refuses to place himself under that bondage, they seek his harm. 
They seek to destroy him and catch him in his words. As he says in Psalm 35, there opened their mouths wide against me and said, Aha, aha, my eyes have seen it. This was ultimately fulfilled by Christ when the Jews watched him closely to catch him in something that they could accuse him of. Because the gospel takes power away from men. And so those in power hated Christ because Jesus took away their power from the little ones. They could no longer lay their traps because salvation was complete in Christ. He came to remove the sheep from the jaws of the wolves. The gospel of grace, which we embrace by faith, takes away the power of men. The figure is the power of the mulberry tree is cast into the sea. Faith removes power from men. And the powerful men hate that. And so they seek an opportunity to destroy and to catch, just as they did with Christ. And Jesus says, woe to them. And he warned his disciples to beware that they don't become like that. Point the world to Jesus where they might be free. Don't allow anyone to ensnare the people of God again. It's a warning throughout all the epistles of Paul. Don't become entangled again under the yoke of bondage. But in every age, the wolves continue to entrap the sheep. Our country today is littered with those who have left the church, not because of Jesus and the gospel, but because of all the stumbling blocks that have been cast in their path. Sexual assaults covered up, theft of tithes and offerings, preachers with million-dollar mansions, powerful cult leaders masquerading as sheep, money and power all designed to keep the people of God in bondage to standards that no one can keep. And it's destroying God's people. And the churches are emptying. I just read the other day from a national Christian leader. The women should be more feminine. That they should smile all the time. Be more sexually responsive. Never speak back to your husband. Never have a thought. And put to death all of your goals and all your desires and ambition. And stay home and please your husband. That's not the gospel. Are we not to please our master? Are we not to delight in God? On the other hand, they teach men to be more masculine, to be better leaders, to get your family under control, to rule society, take dominion at work and at home. But what about men who don't grow beards? What happens when sickness and poverty and death and tribulation and the curse enters? What happens when your strong, virile man ends up in a wheelchair? What happens when you find out after you get married that you married a real woman and not a Stepford wife? When you find out that you love your daughters and want them to thrive in whatever they do. And you find out that you no longer fit the mold. You can either shatter and stumble and fall, or you can leave, and millions are leaving. The powerful leaders trample over their bodies and whisper, they went out from us because they were not of us. 
They went out from us because we have forgotten Christ and we started preaching money and power and culture dominion and man-made rules and no one dares question the powerful ones. But God sees and God judges. But there's another warning on the other side. We know that there is tremendous wrong that takes place in institutions of power. We know that there are many wounded. It is very easy, if you have been wounded, to get yourself caught up in rage and hatred and bitterness. In the days of Jesus, the wrongs committed by Pharisees were many. The wrongs committed by the Sadducees and the Essenes and the Herodians were many. Of course, the greatest one was when they crucified Christ. But they also committed many wrongs against each other. This led to centuries of blood feuds between the groups. There was a continual struggle for power. When one group got into power, they slaughtered and exiled their enemies until their enemies got into power, and then they exiled and slaughtered the other ones. This went on for centuries until finally the Romans came in and stopped it. This was why the Romans were in power in Jesus' day. That attitude prevailed the multitudes. It's a prevailing attitude that continues in the church. That those who commit sins against us must be punished. Vengeance must be taken for honor to be restored. Justice must prevail. It leads to continual unrest and continual suffering. Just yesterday I saw a video taken outside of Moscow, Idaho where people who are members of the church were all lining up with their machine guns and their automatic weapons doing military-style drills to protect themselves from the enemy in the name of Christ, of course. This is happening in the church. This is what Jesus is talking about. Forgive one another. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Don't continue destroying yourself with enmeshed anger, but realize that the kingdom of God is about grace and mercy to forgiven sinners. God changes hearts and reconciles alienated people. This is what the gospel is actually about. Now, he isn't talking about continuing to put yourself in danger. He isn't talking about faking repentance in order to avoid consequences. And there's another topic where we can talk about the horrible wrongs that happen in marriage and sometimes divorce is necessary, but that's another subject. What he's talking about is this, the heart of the gospel, the heart of faith is the forgiveness of sins. This has to be seen on the backdrop of what sin is. It is far, far uglier than we think. We think it's something that happens to the other guys. We don't see the ugliness of our own hearts. Sin is truly ugly. It separates us from our Creator and from one another. It destroys families. It destroys churches. It destroys societies. It destroys my own heart. It is truly heinous and truly ugly. The forgiveness of sins is certainly not saying that sin is not a big deal. We must understand sin the same way that Scripture does. It's worse than we think. 
Psalm 50, God says, But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to declare my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth, seeing you hate instruction and cast my words behind you? When you saw a thief, you consented with him. You've been a partaker with adulterers. You give your mouth to evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done. And I kept silent. You thought I was altogether like you. But I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. All of that's true. But what hope have any of us if God did not provide a way for us to be cleansed from our sins? What hope would we have if God had left us in our corruption? The same God that speaks so harshly of judgment against sin also says this, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you might be feared. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The triune God so loved this world that the word became flesh for the purpose of taking our sins upon himself. And he took upon himself all of that ugliness without pretense and without covering, without pretending that it was less than it was. We sometimes color code crucifixion. We cover it with gold and make it pretty and acceptable. Crucifixion is an ugly, ugly, ugly way to die. It's God saying this is what your sin is. He bore my sin upon the cross naked so that I might be clothed and set free. It's the ugliness of sin unmasked, displayed for the filth that it is, and then put to death. And once we understand that, the faith is the grain of mustard seed, then how can we point our finger to the others and say, you are unacceptable because your sins are worse than mine? No, by faith I lay a hold of the forgiveness of sins, but then how can I deny the forgiveness of sins to those who ask me? Can I shut my heart against those who are seeking to reconcile? Can I shut my heart to those who seek to be free from the bondage of sin themselves, even if it's seven times a day? Can I refuse a word of peace to one who seeks peace without damaging my own soul and my own faith? I believe in the forgiveness of sins. This is added to the confession of our church, the Apostles' Creed, which was declared by every Christian for 2,000 years. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. That God, for the sake of Christ's satisfaction, will no more remember my sins, nor the sinful nature with which I have to struggle all my life long, but graciously imparts to me the righteousness of Christ, that I may never more come into condemnation. Jesus is the only one who ever lived who had the right to flinch at the ugliness of sin and turn his back on the rebellious traitor. But instead, he took him in his arms and took away that sin, filled him with his spirit. He removed all condemnation from me. How then can I refuse 
far, far less to my neighbor who seeks forgiveness. This is why Jesus says, take heed to yourselves. Seven times a day is not even a fraction compared to how much we have been forgiven. We don't need more faith. We need to live consistently with the faith that we have, that we are not slaves. And so we should not think like slaves. Like slaves, if we are slaves, and even if we were perfect, we would still not merit a seat at the table. For the table is for family. Jesus is saying, strive higher than being a good slave. And yet the church still throws stumbling blocks down in front of people, say, perform this, come through this maze correctly, and maybe we'll let you in. And we do the same thing in our own hearts. We'll grant you forgiveness as long as you come through the right path and as long as you accomplish everything I tell you to accomplish. Jesus says, strive higher than being a good slave. You can't even come close to that anyway. Never in this life will you accomplish enough to deserve life from God. If it were possible to do your duty perfectly, you would have simply done your duty and still merited nothing from God. But here's the astounding thing. Because of the grace of God, we have a seat at the table at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're sons and daughters by grace, never by merit. So Jesus says, live consistently with that. Live with open hearts and an awareness of what Jesus has done and offer that same freedom and friendship and reconciliation for all who seek it wherever they might be. What this means is we can sit with the blind and the broken and the sinner and the wounded and allow our hearts to break with them, knowing that perhaps the Lord brought us to them for that purpose, so that we can point them to the one who heals, who forgives, who reconciles, who raises from the dead. And yes, weeping with those who weep puts us at risk of a broken heart. But the solution is not to ensnare them or to keep them in bondage to misery, The solution is not to drive them from Christ because we can't bear to look on suffering, but to show them the way to life and peace. The way to life and peace is not for you to be like me. The way to life and peace is coming to Christ. He walked that same field dripping with blood. He saw the same things that break your heart and it broke his heart. But he took it to the cross. He came to seek and save that which was lost. We can't do that. We can't raise the dead. We can't change the heart. We can't heal the sick. We can't open the eyes of the blind. But we can point everyone to the one who can. The one who receives sinners and sets them free. And he doesn't throw stumbling blocks on the way. He makes the path smooth. He says, come unto me, not all the ones who have done everything perfectly up until now, but come unto me, those of you who are tired, those who are worn out, those who have no strength, those who are done. There's no hoops to jump through. There's no maze to figure out on your way. Just come. 
He forgives freely. He has the power to take away the curse, and he is doing that. And so often this Christian life is waiting. And so we wait. And we can wait together with joy, in peace, reconciled to one another. That's what the gospel is. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would teach us to live consistently with the gospel, that we might live in freedom from bondage, freedom from fear, freedom from those things that plague us. We so often get tired, Father. Give us strength for another day, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.